0: Welcome to NUPI and to this seminar on, with Marina Kaljurand, who is Chair for the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace. Before she took uh, the position as Chair for this Commission, Kaljurand was the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Estonia, and she is a former Ambassador of Estonia in several countries. She has also been the representative of her country to the UN's group of government experts on cybersecurity since 2014. With her capacity and experience, she is uniquely positioned to understand current global challenges to the stability of cyberspace, and we are very happy to welcome her to NUPI. The background for today's topic is that the rapid technological innovation on digitalization creates governance challenges nationally and internationally. The digital technology that underpins critical infrastructure and the global internet is imperfect and vulnerable. It can break and it can be jeopardized by actors with bad intentions. Media headlines about cyber attacks such as the Stuxnet attack, the attack on Estonia, the attacks on Ukrainian power grid, the hacking of the NSA, and the WannaCry attack has increasingly put cybersecurity on the agenda of international politics. And um, at the annual uh, Black Cat cybersecurity conference in Las Vegas this summer, 60% of the attendees said they expected the U.S. to suffer a successful attack on its critical infrastructure in the next two years. Can international norms governing cyberspace be developed to prevent such a scenario? States have different opinions on how to approach this, but have nevertheless increasingly recognized that there is a need for international guidelines and norms pertaining to cybersecurity. Among the initiatives that have been taken to produce international norms and guidelines on this topic is the UN's group of government experts. The mandate of this group has been to give recommendations on the cyber domain and its relevance for international peace and security. However, earlier this year, disagreements between the group's 25 member states emerged and the group failed to agree upon a consensus report. This has left the future of the UN group of government experts and international norms production on responsible state behaviour a bit in the air. Finding other alternatives under the UN umbrella is one way to proceed, but the work could also continue outside of the UN. There are, of course, pros and cons for both alternatives, but important choices need to be made on which way to move forward and what to move forward. With this background and in this context, we are now eager to learn more from Kaliran about how norms production and initiatives to guide responsible state and non state behavior can help to enhance the stability of cyberspace. And also to learn more about the role of the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace, who recently, at the Global Conference on Cyberspace in India, launched new norms to protect cyberspace. Kaliran will now deliver her talk. So um, without further ado, please, Kaliran, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you. Nils. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Well, thank you, Nils. Thank you for a very kind introduction. And uh, I have to say that I'm still connected to the MFA. I'm still advising Estonian Minister of Foreign Affairs on uh, on cybersecurity, and I will be doing it until our presidency, because it was agreement. And I'm very happy that also this event is taking place during our EU presidency. As you know, all digital subjects, cybersecurity, are priority for Estonia. Uh, to start with... On a very personal note, uh, cyber came into my life in 2007 and since then it has been part of my professional activities. 2007, uh, it was the year when Estonia was the first country in the world to fall under cyber attacks for political reasons. and I was then ambassador to Russia, which means that two of my main uh, objectives or aims were first to provide information about what was happening in Estonia and second, to try to find the ways of cooperation. Cyber does not have borders. If you want to be good in cybersecurity, you have to cooperate. You have to cooperate with others. As you can guess, the first task was easy. I learned what DDoS is. I never heard about that before, but I had to start answering at the press conference. What, 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 what were the cyber attacks against Estonia? What was happening there? How bad the attacks were? How we were handling them? The second topic, tried to find ways of cooperation with Russian authorities, did not, I didn't succeed there. Because it takes two to cooperate. And there wasn't any intention or any willingness on Russian side to find who were behind those attacks, or who was sponsoring those attacks, or who was supporting those attacks. So that was my first engagement with cyber. When I was posted as ambassador to the United States in Washington, D.C., It was the Snowden revelation time. As you can uh, imagine, it was the time when the trust between Europe and US was uh, challenged. The Podesta Commission started working after that in the United States, but the question, the balance between privacy and national security was raised very seriously and is still on the agenda. Even today, we still have discussions about the balance. After that, I was uh, representing Estonia in the United Nations. For those who are not familiar with the acronyms, the GG, it's uh, it's, um, a governmental group of experts under the first committee of the United Nations, peace and security, and it was launched by uh, UN Secretary General uh, to look into five questions of cyber and international security, first, new threats, second, uh, new norms of responsible state behaviour, third, applicability of international law to cyberspace, fourth, capacity building, and fifth, uh, confidence building measures. So that's the, that was what what's the UN group of experts was doing, and I'll come to that later. So that's the background. Having said that... <coughs> And today, yes, as Neil said, starting from March this year, I'm honored to chair the Global Commission on Stability of Cyberspace. It's an, uh, it's an international platform which was launched at the Munich Security Conference uh, with very strong support of the, well, the idea came from the Dutch. I don't know if there are any Dutch in the audience. Thank you so much for doing that thank you so much for doing that because what uh, what Dutch government is doing on cybersecurity and especially on international law that's absolutely fabulous so the commission has been now working for 9 months so it took us 9 months to deliver our first norm and also uh, in my in my remarks i will come more closely to the norm and why we did we do what we did that the commission has 27 commissioners nordics are represented by carl bilt I was just looking through the list of commissioners, unfortunately he's the only Nordic there, but I'm the only Baltic there. So uh, we have commissioners from U.S., from Russia, China. Uh, We have uh, Joseph Nye. Uh, We have uh, Vint Cerf, evangelist of Internet. We have some hackers. We have human rights experts. We have Microsoft Vice President. So you see that the, the body is very wide. Because one of the lessons I have learned Cybersecurity is a topic in the history of mankind and security, where governments alone can't do anything. So far, when we were talking about conventional arms, it was very much governments. When we were talking about nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, weapons of mass destruction, it was very much in the government's hands. Cyber has so many actors that governments alone can't be successful. And that's why I personally very much be believe into the multi-stakeholder approach. And I'm convinced that states and governments alone, without cooperation with private sector, academia, civil society, IT folks, can't be successful. So, that was kind of introduction. And, uh, as I told Nils, I can speak for hours. I love cybersecurity, I'm a former diplomat, we're trained to speak. So uh, I'll be really happy if we can also engage. So I'll speak for some time, then we can have discussion and see where the topic will go. But to start with, maybe I would like to emphasise today three things. First, I can't escape the attacks of Estonia in 2007. Why? Because I would say that the lessons we learned then are still important today. 2007, some things have changed. What has changed? When Estonia joined the EU and NATO and we started talking about cybersecurity, security, nobody was interested in the subject. Nobody. I don't know, when did you, when did you start learning cybersecurity? Definitely not 2004. 2000, 2007, after cyber attacks, it appeared <coughs> on the agenda of all international organizations. Today, name me one organization that is not discussing cybersecurity. Everybody. Everybody is discussing. And that's positive. On the negative side, the same questions that we were tackling in 2007, I mentioned just a couple of them, sovereignty, jurisdiction, responsibility of states for, for, for behaviour of non-state actors, attribution. All these questions are still very topical, and we haven't found answers to all of those questions. It's in the process. But we are aware of them, and we are discussing them, which is positive. So, what were the lessons Estonia learned from 2007? Very briefly, I will just uh, stop on that. First, first lesson that we learned was that you have to have cybersecurity high on political agenda in a country. Internally, uh, high on political agenda, it means that you have uh, enough financial resources, human resources, and it's being taken seriously. And that's crucial. Second, you have to have your house in order. You have to know within your country who is responsible for what. So, the next year, after 2007, we launched our first cyber strategy, which uh, which divides responsibilities, obligations, and also accountability of different ministries of different actors in the field. So, if if somebody uh, have, uh, if, if there is more interest than the national strategies of several countries are on the website of the uh, NATO Centre of Excellence Cybersecurity in Thailand. So if you go to the website Centre of Excellence, you'll find the strategies there. Today, we're in the phase of preparing the third strategy, but it helped. You know who is responsible for what, and especially with the grey zones, where the responsibility of one ministry or authority ends, and the other has not stepped. And the ministries, they, don't give a, they didn't give away their power, they fight for power. They want to keep all the subjects to them. And so the grey zones are very easy to, to come, and that's one of the questions why you that's one of the that's one of the reasons why you need strategies, why you need a house in order. Third, what we learned, as I said, you can't be efficient, you can't be, do cybersecurity without the assistance of other multi stakeholders. For <laughs> us, it was first private sector and industry. 2007, the geeks, cyber geeks, the ones that were working for Estonian banks. Came to assist the Estonian government. They did it voluntarily. They did it out of patriotism. And uh, <laughs> Norway is a rich country. Estonia can never, never afford those geniuses. They are working for private sector. But you have to engage with them in one form or another. In our case, they came out of patriotism, and they stayed. So the next year, the Estonian uh, cybersecurity, uh, cyber defense unit within voluntary military organization was formed. It's still operational. There are 40-plus people there. They all have security clearances. They come from very different fields. There are lawyers, there are IT people, economists, very different fields. But they are the OA, reach out to private sector. And it was a very political decision in Estonia at the beginning of the 90s not to create... Uh, IT structures within uh, technical IT structures who are providing uh, internet services within the government. It was a very clear political decision to let private sector drive that and to support private sector in uh, creating IT, uh, ICT startups and later providing services. Uh, perhaps no, no, but I still mention uh, Skype was invented by Estonians. Finances came from Scandinavia, but the brains, four guys, were Estonians. They sold it, filthy rich, inventing new things. But it was important, I think, for our people to see that something like that is doable. So that's why government started supporting startups. Before startups, government supported education. Tiger Leap, uh, personal computers in all Estonian schools, Wi-Fi, internet connection in all Estonian schools. It took some 15 years before those kids graduated and we started seeing results. So cooperation with private sector. Different countries have different ways. I don't want to say that the way we did it, the cyber defense unit is the best one. But what I heard also as a foreign minister uh, traveling around and and meeting corporations and businesses, they were complaining that nobody is listening to them. And that's not right. We have to listen to them, we have to talk to them, because they are actors. They are the ones who own critical infrastructure, they are the ones who provide online services, they have the knowledge, they have the best experts. And that's why multi-stakeholder approach is crucial. That was the third point, working together with private sector. Four, I would even extend, cooperating with uh, academia, IT folks, uh, civil society. When I say IT folks, personally, I see the change in recent maybe years or months that IT community is opening themselves to us. Before, IT community considered themselves being of geniuses, who invented internet, who know how to behave in cyberspace, and we were just stupid, ordinary people who pushed the wrong buttons. In recent years, it, start, it, it, it has started to change. Uh, I was at the same Black Hat you referred to in Las Vegas this summer, and I listened to the, to the keynote by the chief information officer for Facebook, Alex Thomas. And he was the one who said, we have to reach out, we have to talk to ordinary people, and we have to speak in the language which is understandable to ordinary people. And that's great. I also feel the same in Estonia. Our IT people want to talk to us, because they understand that we diplomats, or we people who speak the language that everybody understands can promote them, can explain what they are thinking, can translate. They are very technical stuff. They are very technical language to the language that everybody understands. And that's crucial. Academia lawyers. Uh, It has been agreed in the United Nations already in 2013 that international law applies to cyber, full stop. 2015, in the United Nations, it was even said that uh, uh, international law, in particular, UN Charter in its entirety applies to international law, full stop. But now come the questions, how? I'm a lawyer by education. I studied international law. It's confusing. And now put international law into cyber. It's even more confusing. When there is violation or breach of sovereignty, when somebody implants malware in the territory of another country, or when somebody starts extracting information from another country, or when somebody dies in another country, you have to decide where where is the threshold of violation of sovereignty. Because as a sovereign state, you're supposed to act then. It's like the violation of airspace. You have violation of airspace, you react. You have violation of cyberspace, you react. But what is the level where countries have to start reacting? We haven't discussed it. Even in Estonia, we haven't discussed it. 2007, uh, we, were, we were considering, or there were discussions about whether, tr- whether to trigger or not Articles 4 and 5 of the uh, NATO Treaty. We didn't. Article 4, Consultations Mechanism within NATO, Article 5, Collective Defence. Yeah, We didn't. Why? Because the attacks of 2007, they were, they were disturbing, they were humiliating to a nation that considered itself being e E, E Star, E-Nation, E-Estonia. It was humiliating. And it disturbed our people. Our people were not able to access to online online banking. And trust me, it is a problem in Estonia. I lived in Washington, D.C. I would guess that nobody would even notice if online banking is not working in Washington, D.C. In Estonia, it's a problem. We don't have cash. Okay, it's fun. For one day, you can survive two days. Seven days, it's a problem. So for us, it was humiliating and it was really disturbing. But it wasn't enough to say that it was destructive, it didn't kill anybody, it did not destruct anything. So we did not trigger articles 4 or 5. But these these questions are on the table. And here we need lawyers. Not only the lawyers who are working for the ministries, but real really good international law experts and i would draw your attention to the tally manual 2 if you have heard about it tally manual 2 uh Daily manual 2.0 sorry tally manual 2.0 is application of international law to cyber operations wartime peacetime both 600 pages legal text by 20 experts trying to interpret how international law applies to cyber Even those 20 experts could not agree on everything. But they put their thoughts together. There is a book, how they propose. Now it's the role of governments. It's the role of governments to look into the Tailing Manual and to see what is okay for governments uh, to approve what is not. Because only governments can interpret and apply international law. Academia can't government, which means that the legal advisers, MFA, MOD, prime minister's office, legal advisers in those offices have to start looking into what lawyers have proposed. Otherwise, we will be meeting in 10 years in the same room and repeating how international law applies to cyber, how international law applies to cyber. we need answers, and we have to start from somewhere, some pieces, some first pieces. So that was the fourth, fourth lesson we learned, and the fifth, international cooperation. As I said, that's crucial. I still have time, yeah? Oh, I still have time. International cooperation. Uh, For the Global Commission, we asked experts to prepare a report giving us overview of what is happening today globally in different forums, in different institutions. And they came back saying that there are 84 global initiatives on cybersecurity. On one side, too much. What are they doing? They're duplicating each other. At the same time, I'm rather happy that the initiatives are out there. For every global initiative or way of international cooperation, we have to understand and make it very clear why we're doing it, what is the result, what is it aiming at. So for me, all these 84 plus initiatives are important for awareness raising They are important as educational tools. When we talk today about cybersecurity, I would argue that there are maybe 40 countries who understand what we're talking about. 150 plus don't have a clue. But it's not okay. We can't talk about global cybersecurity, global cyber stability. If we do not have all the players at least on the minimum level of understanding and engagement. And that's why we have to reach out to those. Cybersecurity can't be a topic for rich white countries if we want to succeed globally. And that's why kind of awareness raising uh, events, educational events, are important. GG that Niels mentioned. For the United Nations, uh, f- I will just very briefly remind you that the group of governmental experts that had five uh, priorities, yeah? mandated by the Secretary-General, was also mandated to write a consensus report. Consensus report. The group failed. We failed because of very deep ideological division. <coughs> On one side, there were countries uh, like Norway, like Estonia, like-minded countries who see the benefits of the use of ICTs for all spheres of life. They see it as a democratic tool, and they see the future of ICTs. ICT re- revolution came, it will not disappear even more. With Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, uh, cybersecurity will be in our houses, in our homes, in our bedrooms, in our kitchens, everywhere. So cyber came to stay. On the other side, there are countries, and I'm not going to name the countries because Johanna said that it's not Chatham House, yeah? I want to go also to some of those countries later, maybe. <laughs> but you can guess who the countries are. Come on, look at the list of the UNGG. On the other side, there are countries who think that the use of ICTs is a way of interfering into their domestic affairs, brainwashing their citizens with their Western values and principles, starting colored revolutions, and so on, and so on. If you follow the recent news coming from China, from the internet uh, conference, then there it was said that China respects international law, but sees cyber sovereignty above it. For me, as a lawyer, it doesn't make sense. If you accede to international conventions, international agreements, then you give up part of your sovereignty because you take on board those obligations. And if you say next day, our national law applies, and not the obligations of international uh, agreements and conventions, does it make sense? Why do you then accede to international conventions if you are ruled only by your eternal laws? So, For me, as a lawyer, I, I don't understand that. A couple of days ago, we read news from Russia that the Russian Security Council ordered their institutions to build up sovereign internet for BRICS countries. So we see that although we're talking about stable internet, we're talking about cybersecurity. there are countries who are thinking differently. And in the United Nations, the division was clear. Yes, we made progress in four soft fields. Yes, we made progress in capacity building, in confidence building, in application of norms, norms which are not international law, but which are political norms. Yes, we made progress there. But we did not make progress on international law. Some of those countries were not even ready to repeat what was agreed among us 2013-2015, international law. UN Charter in its entirety, particularly, applies to international law. That's the present situation. Do I see that in, in the United Nations we can make some progress in the near future? No. And now I come to my point about awareness raising. But I see that United Nations could be and should be used as a uh, platform for discussions, awareness raising, including everybody who wants to discuss cybersecurity. But we have to be very clear: there are not going to be results; there are not going to be consensus results. And we have to agree that if the United Nations should decide on consensus basis. Other, other international forums, uh, NATO, cyber defence, EU, uh, digital market, OSC, confidence building measures, I see that there is a pretty good specialisation between international organisations, what they are doing. And now coming to uh, multi-stakeholder approach. I don't know whether it's Microsoft in the audience, because I always clash with them, but anyway, they know that. Uh, Microsoft. An example how industry and business should engage and should be listened to and should participate in cybersecurity. Absolutely recognise it. Although I do not agree to their proposals. Uh, At the moment, there are two proposals that Microsoft has tabled. One of them is to write a new uh, digital Geneva Convention. Why don't I think it's a good idea? I described the ideological divide within the United Nations. I see and I feel and I know that there is no readiness and no willingness for in, by international community to write new conventions. I worked in the United Nations. I was legal advisor at some point, And I saw how the conventions were drafted. 30 years of work, and you are still in chapter one, definitions. Because as long as there is no political will, lawyers can't solve the problems. As long as we have not been able to agree what is terrorism, we will not agree what is cyber terrorism. So it's the waste of time to propose writing something new. Same proposal came from Russia. Same proposal came from China. Instead of applying existing international law, let's, let's write new code of conduct. For me, That's the way of escaping looking into today's problem and starting applying today's international law. Do I exclude absolutely writing new pieces of international law? No. We might come to that at some point. After discussions, after looking into existing international law, I do not exclude that we have to write something new. But first, let's look into what we have and interpret what we have and then start looking into international law. Uh, into new pieces of, uh, into drafting new conventions. And the second proposal of Microsoft, which is the uh, new organization of attribution like uh, IAEA. Uh, Again, I'm I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. Uh, With my government background, I have the feeling that governments will never, never give the right of attribution or the right of retaliation to anybody else. It's it's the question of sovereignty, and it's not a question of autocratic regimes or not understanding democracy. It's in the hands of governments to do attribution. Some people are saying that attribution is the most difficult part of cybersecurity. I don't agree. Having talked to Estonian IT people, IT folks, they say that they can attribute everything. What is difficult is the political level and the legal level. When technical people find who are behind those attacks, then political level has to make the decision to say it publicly or not. If you say publicly, there will be consequences. If you don't say publicly, there will be consequences. So I would like to urge all countries to be public when they are under cyber attacks, to be public about attribution and to be public about retaliation. 2007, we did our attribution, and as our then defence minister Jaak Kowalczyk so said, he put it very nicely, uh, that if somebody behaves like a dog, bites like a dog, eats like a dog, most probably it's a dog. So using circumstantial evidence, and I would say that we 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 did reasonable attribution. Under international law, states are required to do reasonable attribution, but you have to convince also other parties, other states, others, that you're doing the right thing. There is always the question how much information to disclose. You can't disclose everything, all the technical way, all the technical details of attribution, because you make yourself vulnerable. There is always the question how much to expose, how much not. And finally, my last remarks about the global commission. Yes, we proposed the first norm. Niels had it, and I'm, I'm happy to read it out. Because when our, co- when our commission started its work, 27 egos, yeah? 27 people coming from different, different fields. But it was interesting that we agreed almost immediately what is the problem at the moment, what is the question we want to look at, and it was uh, stability of cyberspace from the, from the perspective of stability, availability of the internet. Cyberspace is stable, as long as Internet is stable, secure, open, available, resilient. So that's why our first norm that we propose to the international community concerns the protection of the public core of Internet. It's the first step. We will continue our work. I know that there are discussions about the uh, protection of financial systems, there are other proposals on the table coming from Estonia. We proposed already in 2013 to the UNGG a norm saying that it is not okay to attack financial systems during peacetime. Okay, the wording was more sophisticated, but in principle, why we did, why, did, why we did that? We learned from our experience of 2007. Those who were under attack, cyber attacks 2007, were our banks. And banking system, financial system, is something that all states should be interested in keeping safe and secure. It's the backbone of economy. We're talking about peacetime, yeah? It should be in everybody's interest. If something happens to SWIFT, it will not influence only you here in Norway. Immediately, it will influence us. It, it will have global influence. So that's why one of the norms I think we will be looking into in the future will be the protection of critical infrastructure. We will be looking into Internet of Things, we will, maybe artificial intelligence, because when I said that, uh, that governments have to cooperate with others and they, they have to be open and they have, to, they have to be ready to think about tomorrow's questions Then, one of the laws that is being drafted at the moment in Estonia is the law on artificial intelligence. Uh, Our lawyers are trying to regulate the legal status of artificial intelligence of robots. We have physical persons, we have corporations, but now the liabilities, obligations and rights of robots. By the way, in Finland there is already one company, Tieto, that has an artificial intelligence robot in their board of directors. She's a lady, her name is Alicia, and she's the member of the board of directors with the right to vote. There is no law yet. Finns are also drafting the law. There's a friendly competition between us and Finns, who will be the first one. But that's something that governments have to look into. Governments have to start thinking out of the box, and governments have to come out from their comfort zones. Thank you.